roast me for like five minutes. For the record, they are not toys. They are collectibles. There is a huge difference. She's not going to be complaining when they're worth something someday. I'll tell you that. If you could, please turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, specifically verses 10 through 15. But we're going to look at 1 through 15 today in preparation for next week when we finish the chapter. We've been working through this series, Passing the Torch. It's all about Paul's conversation with his young steward, Timothy, who is pastoring the church of Ephesus. And Paul is pretty much desperately, and we can sense from the context of Second Timothy why, so desperately trying to have Timothy understand all uh, that is hanging on his witness and how he leads the Christian life amidst a culture that's quite literally trying to kill Christians at the time. And we look at our culture today, I tell you, I've gotten to the point where I just don't want to watch the news anymore at all. Um, not just ongoing kind of political wars, but the level of original sin that they just kind of parade out there for uh, any news feed can often just leave me speechless. Uh, I was camp pastor for a youth camp a couple weeks ago, and, and you would you would be chilled to the bone to overhear some of these conversations and just see how nonchalantly our children are speaking of tragedies like shootings and human trafficking, not without empathy, but without shock as if it has become kind of second nature in their speech. And you know what? Honestly, if I'm just being candid, the ugly head of sin, uh, and especially within my own life, can often just leave me so angry. I feel two things about it, really. Angry, and I grieve. I'm just full of grief over the sin that has just captured the world around us. And I think, Why would we be so angry and grieved? What's the reason, church? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, as Neil pointed out last week, kind of gave us 19 ugly characteristics that people possess. Verses 6 through 9 specifically say people creep into homes and take women captive, which still happens today. There's actually a longer list of these atrocities in Romans 1, verses 29 through 31 as well. But Pastor Neil used verses 1 through 9 in chapter that this series is really Neil's bailiwick. He can just get this idea of the culture down and put it in a way in which we can understand it. So last sermon, he really did just set us all up for a conversation of what the culture looks like and what our responsibility as the church is supposed to be in light of that culture. And so we see a world around us that is fallen, lovers of money, slanderous, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Neil put them all under narcissism. And then he gave it to me these days is boiled down to a conversation of consent as well as consumerism. Instead of running to Christ for the answer, we run to everything else this world has to offer in order to find satisfaction that the world can never give us. And in response to this many years ago, probably walking through this 1950s fundamentalism in the American church or the church in America, we took on the mindset of corporate America to try to fix this problem of numbers. These actions revealed over time and still today one of the greatest truths a Christian could hear, one that will feed our spirit, but also at the same time very much upset our flesh. We know that people who profess to be Christians but whose lives look just like the rest of the world are deceived. All kinds of people who supposedly made a decision, repeated a prayer, signed a card, walked an aisle, accepted Jesus as their Savior, their lives don't look any different. 
They say they're Christian, but the reality is they don't know the Christ. Because when you know this Christ, and this is what we know from those of us who have met him, when you meet Jesus, everything in your life begins to change. When a person comes face to face with God in flesh, he reaches down into your heart and saves you from the clutches of sin, you're going to look different. You're going to look really different. Everything changes when you follow the king of kings. Neil said it this way last week. I know I keep referring to it, but it was just so good. It's a really good sermon. You don't live like a light in the darkness by thinking of Jesus as a fire escape from hell. You live a countercultural life by being under the lordship of Jesus in a land of idol worship. Last week, we were asked the question, this is how he set us up. There is a moral superiority that goes along with this in our culture. It's self-obscribed. So how do we, believers in Jesus Christ, the church, how do we combat this as followers of Jesus? And I can remember a time where I was first kind of put in the position to ask this question. It was the fall of 2003 in my first college course at University of North Florida. And I went in a bit wide-eyed. And I remember going up to a philosophy teacher, introducing myself and taking a seat. It wasn't two minutes since he slammed the door to our class of about 30 of us that he asked the question, how many of you in here believe in God? And about at that time, I think it was like half the class raised their hand, maybe a little more. So I was even shocked that 20 out of 30 did it. I was still that naive in that sense. So I said, two-thirds, okay, there's still a chance for the church. That's good. All right. And he goes on to continue. How many of you who believe in God profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That's when the numbers got lower. About six or seven dropped off. There were a little over ten of us. We're still in northeast Florida. So he then says and looks at us, and I'll never forget this because I thought he was kidding. He said, I don't... Um, want to alarm any of you, which I thought was an interesting precept. He said, I don't want to alarm any of you, but the goal by the end of this course is to eliminate at least half those hands. And I just went, is this guy for real? And I immediately raised my hand because back then I thought, or I spoke before I gave it a second thought. Thank God that that <laughs> age has done me well. Uh, wisdom... <laughs> I'll be 33 if you didn't catch that part in the children's room. I said, Professor, I don't want to fail this course. But if I go home and tell my parents what you just said, you are going to have a five-foot brown-haired lady at the door of your classroom anointing it with oils for the rest of the semester. I said, it's over for you, buddy. Like, you're going to be on every prayer list, every prayer chain. Her husband's name is Bear. Please watch what you say next time you threaten a class full of Christians. And I passed the class. Uh, <laughs> out of fear. No, I'm just kidding. Now, I'm not suggesting that every college kid facing this kind of question of what to do in a rather abusive culture to Christianity uh, just threatens the teacher with your parents. That's not my suggestion. 
But it was there in that classroom I saw a clearer picture of the fallen world around us. I began to realize society is swimming in this pool of what is called postmodernism. If you are not familiar with this word, I suggest as believers you become familiar with this word. The philosophy of thought here is everywhere, and it is not only resistant to our Christian truth, it is resistant to all truth claims. Yes, it is a truth claim resistant to all truth claims. For example, let's say you are a Christ follower who exclaims, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Immediately by believing that, you are at serious odds with the world system around you. A basic tenet of our faith puts you as an enemy to the culture, as counter to the world. We are a people. And if you don't believe this, now is the time to start. By professing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are living against the grain. Mere Christianity in its most basic form is incredibly controversial. It's unavoidably so. But it was in that philosophy class I learned the name Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche was perhaps the most towering figure among 19th century philosophers and thinkers. He was known as the secular prophet. Nietzsche thought of Christianity as a sort of identity, a man-made, own-image mythology to cope with the challenges of existence and death. He called Christianity the religion of pity, or worse, the religion of comfortableness. In Nietzsche's view, Christianity was for weak people. It was a narcotic, stilted one's capacity to address their own shortcomings and really numb their ability to experience joy. Because to Nietzsche, joy was simply eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. So was Nietzsche right to call Christianity the religion of comfortableness or a convenient system? According to Paul in our passage today, Nietzsche was dead wrong. Following Christ is not a religion of comfortableness or convenience. Following Christ is a saving faith with an earthly cost. And in the midst of that type of lawless world, 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 15, gives us a description of what it costs us to be spiritually faithful to Christ Jesus and how we are to fixate upon only our Savior in order to finish the race strong. So if you can, if you are able, please stand with me as we read 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 15. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings." which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Church, you may be seated. Thank you. Here we have a question, a conversation between Paul and his student, Timothy. 
Paul gives us this list of atrocities in one through nine. If you look back at chapter three, he gives us this list to warn us, to warn Timothy of what to avoid. And yet this is the same Paul that said in Philippians four, eight, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worth praise, Paul instructs the church to think about those things. So why is he giving us this other disgusting stuff in verses one through nine? Church, he's given us that other stuff because life. Because reality. Reality is we live in a fallen world where atrocities happen all the time. And no matter how separatist your mentality, I promise you the culture will find a way to throw its influence at you in some way, big or small. This is not justification to submerge oneself in unholy things in some sort of, well, if you can't beat them, join them fashion. That is not the mantra of the Christian church. It is to remain steadfast in faithfulness and holiness. But we should be reminded all the more of our daily dependence. No truer words ever spoken for a Christ follower in today's world than We need thee every hour. Oh, Lord, how we need thee. Let not an hour go by in your life without being reminded of our full dependency on Christ Jesus, not to fall or error and sin, but to continue the race well. Piper said, every holy soul prefers to linger in the beauties of holiness than in the ugliness of immorality. We prefer those wonderful things of Philippians 4, 8, right? As believers in Christ, that's where we want our mind, but we cannot ignore the abrasive sin of the culture around us. You see, Nietzsche is wrong to suggest there's something inherently comfortable about Christianity because the local church was never designed to be a culturally comfortable social club. It never was. It's never meant to affirm people in their idolatry and then just send them off to live their best life now. Remember verse 13 in chapter 3 here. While evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Everyone in this room, including myself, is not beyond being deceived. It's prideful to think you are. Your best life now is the worst news a Christian could hear. If our best life is now, then heaven is not in your future. But declaring the message in your writing that you are to pick up your cross and follow Jesus and that may lead to you being ostracized from society, that's not so much a bestseller these days. Not flying off the shelves, those messages. You see, the culture doesn't spit at our feet right now, but they are blaring the message, conform to our worldly ways or be discounted as a person. The church was meant, conception, to be countercultural. A set-apart community embodying a radically different vision for human flourishing. I remember when it was time to name our student ministry here at Amelia Baptist Church, because, you know, that's something we're instructed to do in the Bible. Uh, I like I liked two things. I liked student ministry and I liked Adam's servants. Those were the two that I had decided on. Adam's servants just has that ring to it, you know, and 
Neither were popular, which was hard for me to imagine. And as a staff, we came up with the name counterculture uh, from Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And we've loved the name ever since. It's just kind of grown on us. And in that name, though, more than just saying we've encouraged students to live a countercultural lifestyle. But I know in order to truly understand what the phrase counterculture means, we must first explain what it doesn't mean. Countercultural is not separatism. It's not separatism. In the past, many Christians have responded to culture with both kind of condemnation and retreat removing themselves far away from the corruption of culture. But Christians who remove themselves from the world in hopes of self-preservation might not realize that true cultural separation is sort of impossible. Do not confuse this, however, for a family's honorable decision to homeschool their children or filter cultural exposure in forms of entertainment. Both of those are left up to parental discernment afforded to us in Deuteronomy 6. This is not what separatism means. We shouldn't be too harsh in thinking of separatists, by the way. Knowing historically, it was monks who stayed away in monasteries guarding the text so that we could have it while the entire world burned to the ground. Knowing that it was Baptists who were considered separatists for leaving Europe because they were trying to kill us. Separatism in this case is the refusal to engage with anyone who doesn't look, sound, talk, or believe like you out of fear of influence. It's rather stemmed from an unhealthy fear of the world and a rather misguided understanding of the mission. John 17 said, uh, Jesus' own words, verse 15, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it, but sanctify them by your truth. The word, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Counterculture is not separatism and counterculture is not antagonism. Some Christians see little in the current culture worth redeeming. I get that. I understand. I have decided, though, some of us who are are tempted to be antagonists, we decide to fight against almost everything the culture promotes simply because the culture promoted it. Offended by our current cultural disposition, we tend to want to flip over tables of society or live a life of internet trolling. If you don't know what that term is, look it up. Some of you may be guilty of it. I'm a troll. I had no idea. Yep, you are. In other words, they succeed in stating clearly what they are against. But here's what antagonists do that the Christian's not supposed to do. Simply condemn without offering An alternative solution. You see, you're a Christian, so you're on the side of truth. So knowing Jesus, you always have a solution. Always. Counterculture is not separatism. It's not antagonism. And it certainly isn't relevance. This is my favorite. This is where I'm really going to go off and harp and tangent, just to warn you. Others have gone to the opposite extreme by falling into the relevance trap. I think this is probably, in my opinion, you may differ. That's perfectly fine. This is probably the largest threat for Christian leaders today. In an effort to appeal to outsiders, which is part of the mission, not necessarily to appeal, but to share the word with, 
Some Christians just simply copy the culture. Unfortunately, the pursuit of pop culture removes the church from its historically prophetic position in society. A popular church in South Florida began their entire service with a tribute to Prince the Sunday after he passed away. True relevance for the church will happen when we pay less attention to methods to cure our irrelevance in the culture, and as we as a church pay more attention to our reverence before a holy God and faithfulness to our mission. This is what sets us apart, our aim for holiness, not relevance. Jesus said, if the world hates you, some of us are not okay with that. Let's be honest. I don't want to be hated. Well, don't be hated just for any reason. Be hated because you're following Jesus Christ. That's a great reason to be hated. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Church, as a people, we need to be okay with being unpopular. We need to be okay with it. We need to be okay with being on the outside of the inner ring. Because part of what allows that temptation to come in our life is our idolatry of wanting to be included by people we have been there to save. This doesn't mean, by the way, we go out of our way to incite the world's hatred. I'm laughing because I struggle with that big time sometimes, not all the time. I'm just not a perfect person. I know many of you are shocked by that. I know, it's weird. Doesn't mean we go out of our way to incite the world's hatred. This is what I mean. We're going to be hated. Might as well enjoy it, right? Like the world's going to hate us. We might as well say whatever we want. No, this is not, we're not wearing our outsider status like a badge of honor. That leads to pridefulness. But we do need to come to terms with the fact that Christ's followers will be ostracized. This is what seeker-centered churches are now learning because of the droves of 18 to 25-year-olds raised in church but now abandoning the faith altogether is that relating to the world by following the world is not only a recipe for disaster, but in most cases it results in watering down the truth of the gospel to make messages more palatable to those living in unrepentant sin. A watered-down gospel does not save, and you can't see Christ as Savior until you see yourself as sinner. That is when salvation is sweet. That is when your heart is filled with gratitude at the truth that He didn't have to get involved in our mess, but He did. So what is counterculture? We have the definition on here. It's rather long, but I wanted to read it to you. The next generation of Christians aren't separatists, antagonists, or striving to be relevant. Instead, they are counterculture as they advance the common good in society. The next Christians see themselves as salt-preserving agents actively working for restoration in the middle of a decaying culture. They attach themselves to people and structures that are in danger of rotting while praying for Christ's redeeming work to be through them. They understand that by being restorers, they fight against the cultural norms and often flow counter to the cultural tide. But they feel as Christians, they've been called to partner with God in restoring and renewing everything they see falling apart. In other words, living differently can be hard. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Going against the ebbs and flows of culture can create fiction, sometimes hostile reactions, sometimes within family members. 
But just as the Apostle Peter encourages us, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I love how Peter puts things, man. You see, we are fighting against the grain of the world's ways, not for any reason at all, but for a very specific mission to build the kingdom of God from within the world. To tell others about Christ. And it is one of the most difficult, most important things we will do as a follower of Jesus Christ on this earth. The best illustration I've heard when it comes to counterculture is it's a lot like life counter to death. Light counter to darkness. And the darker the world, church, the brighter the lights need to be. Some of you may not feel like you're a really bright light for the truth of Jesus Christ sometimes. And if I were, can I join you in that? Sometimes I don't feel like a bright light at all. Scientists have said if the earth was flat or if you were standing high on a mountain, you could see bright lights hundreds of miles in the distance. Uh, on a dark night, you could even see a candle flame flickering up to 30 miles away. In your spiritual walk, as you practice the disciplines of the faith, as your heart continues to long for Christ as Lord and Savior, even if you are brand new to the faith, let me encourage you with this. The darkened world can still see a candle. Be encouraged that he who began a good work in you will finish it, no matter the size of your flame right now. Amidst the hopelessness of a fallen world bent on their ways, Paul hits us hard. If you look at verse 10 here in chapter 3, here Paul gives us an alternative to evil. 10 through 13 is good news. It's hard news, but it's good news. If you decide to be a godly people, a people alternative to the culture, it will cost you. Verse 12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Unavoidable side effect of following Jesus is cost. Three things. You will be ostracized. You will be put, uh, you will put your sin to death and feel every second of it. You will not live for yourself or for your own pleasures, but by the word and for the mission. But Paul has a remedy for the church. The key to not becoming like your culture is to be Christ-centered in what we preach, what we teach, and how we live out our lives within our faith family. Church, we become what we focus on. Let's look at three reminders of the church's countercultural identity in Christ Jesus. And may we be encouraged in this to finish the race strong. Isn't it interesting how the church can feel boring or monotonous sometimes, but the very nature of the church is revolutionary. The mere fact that we're meeting and why we're meeting is incredibly against the grain of the world around us. That should excite you. The first aspect of the church's countercultural identity that we would do well to remember is though Christians will be ostracized, we have a countercultural presence. Church, the church has always been a physical embodied gathering in which God's people pray, sing together, break bread together. And we take for granted just how radical this is. What else in the world brings different people together with such regularity? What makes this sacred time together so countercultural? Because the world around us is increasingly living their lives via screens, apps, and phones. Our relationships with others have become incredibly digital. In such a world, the church's physical gathering, what we're doing right now in a common space for a few hours on a Sunday, is in its nature a revolutionary act. 
To the world around us, this is just any other day. But to followers of Jesus Christ, we're like, look, every day is resurrection day. But for a couple hours on Sunday, the spirit of God living inside of us gets to work alongside brothers and sisters. And I am rejuvenated for it. Are you leaning on the church body to such a degree that you can't wait for our time together? Or is the church gathering this morning a take it or leave it situation? This will determine the level of countercultural presence in your life. Why? Because Christianity is plural. It's meant to be shared. The church is a family, and we need to recognize what a countercultural gift it is. You know, one thing I love about Amelia Baptist Church, man, is it is chock full of an older generation that does not know they are an older generation. Let that one linger for a second. (laughs) All the young families aren't clapping. They're like, oh my gosh, you're not kidding. They work us to death. Here, Monday through Friday, I'm like, you guys are, you guys are retired, right? Like, aren't you retired? Don't you want to go home? Nah, man, I want to be here and work for the church. Praise God for you. Russ Cahill said he's not 72, he's 27 and dyslexic. But can I encourage you with something this morning on a serious note? If you are part of a generation who's walked a little farther in life than our younger generations, um, you see that younger generations are flooding our church, right? You know why? It's not the preaching and all of us are like, yep, (laughs) that's obviously true. Because I've talked to them because they're looking for the wisdom of older men and women who have gone before them. And, and I don't mean to come down on you because you, some of you guys are awesome about this, but this is a good reminder that's needed in this text. We may be doing a disservice with this God-given opportunity of younger generations flooding our church when we whisk in and out of our worship services without ever once in a while introducing ourselves to a younger couple and then asking them to lunch or dinner. Kids included. I know it's funny. But do you know that some of us will walk around thinking that our kids are burdened to you? Don't make our kids feel like burdens. Don't make us feel like burdens for bringing our kids. There's a loving centeredness needed in this multi-generational feel. And this church is so incredible about it. But I don't say that to build you up. I say that to remind you of the importance of a multi-generational congregation. Parents of young children in the room right now. You are in a room full of people who have walked where you walked. Look, stay the course in your biblical discipleship. Pray without ceasing to a God who is listening and seek fellowship with people in your own boat. Absolutely. But it would be asinine to avoid the invites and the wisdom of those who are closer to the shore. Jesus said in John 17, may they be unified like we are unified. And he did not separate this programmatically. In a streaming culture, this is vital because we were meant to be multi-generational in our community. This is how we achieve a countercultural presence. The most countercultural thing you can do in the world today is be around people who aren't exactly like you with the same interests. Let the church be a light this way. One of the greatest gifts of the 21st century, Mark Dever said this, 
One of the greatest gifts of the 21st century church will be to resensitize people to the incarnational reality of what it means to be a human being. Look a brother or sister in the eyes on Sunday morning, shake their hand and say, I love you and I am glad you're here. To God be the glory. We're missing that in our culture today. Number two, countercultural change through brokenness and holiness. You will put your sin to death. So we must be a people of brokenness and holiness. The Christian church should be a place where transformation happens. Christianity doesn't just say you're okay as you are. It's a faith that meets us where we are, but it doesn't let us stay there. It's a faith with a realistic, sobering understanding of sin and injustice in our world with the knowledge that Christ died to rescue us from it. The local church actually is the primary place for transformation to begin and to happen. In a context of accountability, church members will strive together, not as perfect people, but as a community of broken sinners to move to the direction of holiness. We speak truth and love to one another so that we can grow and change and look more like Jesus. This is extremely countercultural in a world that insists you are just fine as you are. No one has the right to say you could change. Just follow your heart. Follow your heart is terrible advice. Your heart is wicked. It wants to appease the master of this world. Following it does not make any sense. Following the word of God makes all sense. Because the word of God will never fail us when our emotions will come and go. Distinctly, Christian community isn't primarily about this solidarity and brokenness. We're actually all supposed to be pursuing holiness as well. But there is no pursuit of holiness without genuine repentance. That's how we can be counterculture. We're genuinely repentant. We're not walking around here as if our lives are perfect. But we're perfectly fine with bringing our sins to believers in Jesus Christ and to the leadership here because we want to be confessing and cleansing of them. Bringing them to God first and foremost, but not being ashamed to say we have have fallen and we need help. This will increase vulnerability. This will increase accountability. And you will see discipleship flourish within this amazing body of believers. Most important thing we can take away from the idea of biblical repentance in 2 Corinthians 7.10 is that the world is not interested in killing the lion. interested in taming it. Watch the show When Animals Attack. Right? Do you ever? Thank you, all of you. None of you. All right, perfect. This illustration will go wonderfully. Thanks, uh, the three of you. There's a show called When Animals Attack, and the premise is people have put themselves in pretty ridiculous situations, and in those situations, the animals have acted, I don't know, like animals. And so, one in particular, they brought this lion, which is an apex predator, out to the stage, and they had a swimsuit model lay on it, as you will. Because many of you, when looking for swimsuits, are like, how does this look next to a lion? That's what I really need to know. So they're filming it, and the trainer's there, and the trainer's yelling everything in German, because that's just, I guess, how you train animals. You yell German at them. And so they're just constantly yelling German at the animal. It's obeying, it's obeying, obeying, until suddenly it just starts mauling the woman. And she's alive, praise God. But the trainer is interviewed after, and so are a bunch of people uh, walking around, and that's always the best part of when animals attack, because these people are always have the same responses. I just can't believe that happened. I just don't understand why that violent, killing predator, the mall. 
us. I think Mufasa has kind of a lions for us. Uh, you have to realize when when you're at the zoo and you're looking at the lion, you know what the lion's thinking? Look at that food on the other side of the moat. Right? There's no there's no like cuddly premise here. Worldly grief, worldly sorrow, worldly repentance. It's horizontal. It's only repentance because you got caught. It's not worried. It's not worried about killing the lion because it believes it contained the lion. The lion's a lot like our sin. It's in, we're interested in keeping it around and convincing ourselves we can control it. That's because we have believed a lie from the enemy. This is a lie that will leave us looking exactly like the world we are not supposed to look like. Neil said it a couple weeks ago. We have but one answer for sin. Flee. We can't warn the world of the dangers of sin while we live a life knee deep in it. it. Must be a people of true repentance. And finally, countercultural word and mission. So not only is there a countercultural presence or a countercultural change in brokenness and holiness, but there is a counterculture word and mission. Church, are we waking up thinking about our mission? Do we recognize and realize how fallen this world actually is and how great of need Jesus actually is in the world around us? Do we understand the importance as messengers of the gospel to be on our game at all times? To know the Bible so well, we don't have to stumble around it in order to express the message of the gospel. Three days ago, a woman in Conroe, Texas, was given 40 years in prison for trying to sell her two-year-old daughter into a type of slavery. Police officers, praise God, intervened in time, and the baby is safe. But if you are engaged with what's happening in the world today and rooted in the commands of the one true God, you will have a lot of trouble forgetting the mission at hand. We must always remember the mission isn't about us. It's not a self-help mission. It is about our growth and change, but it isn't for our sake it's about our lives bearing witness to the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds us in chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Church, living only for yourself leads to death. Following your path rather than the light and lamp of the perfect word of God will only result in emptiness and idolatry. Yet there is such a satisfaction that comes with knowing the perfect word of God well, isn't there? Our main weapon in this fight is one we as a body statistically lack. Strong biblical foundations. You see, there is no, well, my parents were this, well, my parents taught me, or I've always attended a church that, that substitutes the vital authoritative role of the perfect holy scriptures. This fight will always come down to how well you know the word. If you know the word well, if you work to apply his commandments to your life, then living in light of the truth of the one true God, you will fight well. You will not be threatened by the culture, but you will withstand it. You will persevere because the spirit of the God of God is living inside of you. 
If you know him as Christ, Savior and Lord, if you understand what he did with his death, burial and resurrection, that he came to seek and to save the lost so that we could be reconciled back to our father, God, after the fallenness in Genesis three, you will absorb him and not the culture slinging so many arrows at you day after day after day. To live counterculturally, church, is to live your life saturated in the word of a holy God. In conclusion, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, uh, I hear you, but man alive, all of this that you've gone over, easier said than done. I get it. Some of you are like, you don't know what goes on at work. You do not know what goes on in my family. You do not know what church I just left. Maybe for many of you, it's your love for the things of the world that keeps pulling you away. Maybe for many of you, you're feeling this separation between you and God because you're not as biblically saturated as you need to be. Paul offers a remedy. Restructure your life to where everything is fixated on Christ Jesus. Dig deeper in your walk with Christ in response to a culture trying to dig deeper into you. When Ella Jo was born, um, we did the, the, the first parent thing, right? She's our oldest. And we did the thing where we're really excited about every little thing that she does. Like the sneeze was wonderful. And now we're like, stop sneezing. Um, but, uh, but so I remember her, her first steps. This was like a huge kind of battle to the first steps. And every time she'd get going, man, something would get in her way. You know, like there'd be a dresser or whatever. And she has my head size. So we were really worried that gravity wasn't going to allow this to happen. Uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but she grew into it. Uh, I haven't. Uh, so the idea of Ellie Jo walking seemed foreign to us, but man alive, I'll never forget when it finally happened. And she had those chubby little palms slapped up on that dresser, pulled herself up, did the whole heave-ho, turned around. She had the one foot ready to go. We're like, come on with the other foot. Like the one foot, that's fine. But you really got to catch yourself on the other side, you know? So we're coaching her. Come on, look at me, come on. She hurls it around. Boom, we got a walker. She's got the other one coming. Boom, and then two seconds later, face plant onto the carpet right and in that moment we're not running around like an ambulance we're going yeah you know this is amazing our kid's a genius she can walk right like this is just an incredible feat but i remember as we're growing older and as we see other dads react to this news i have yet to see a dad look at their kid take their first steps and be like what a moron <laughs> like unbelievable how this kid is walking. He gets this from your brother. I promise this is my family. We're walkers like there's nothing in him who's not just rejoicing wonderfully over enthusiastically taking tons of photos and videos over their kids first steps. And when I reminded in the midst of this life of darkness and trial and tribulation and pain that we have a good good father watching us take steps and asking us by his word to focus on nothing else but him and so here is our good father as we're walking through this life taking steps falling taking steps looking at us and just going look at me watch dad Watch your father. Keep going. You got this. Angels, check this out. Look at what my boy's doing. Look what my girl's doing. She's looking at dad. She's looking at the father. Arms wide open. Devil, shut up. You better not say a thing about my kid. I've already got you defeated. Right? So this idea, come, look, watch. And if we can just ignore 
the pain and suffering of the world. We might feel like we're okay, but that's an impossibility. What God has instructed us to do is to focus on the open arms of our Heavenly Father, to restructure everything in this world till we are fixated on our Savior King. Why? Because He's where the power to survive is. He's where the strength comes from. Do not listen to the lies of the enemy. The strength comes from no other thing. Some of you have gotten here this morning and you may be bruised, broken. Some of you may be walking in with some things like stitches that really need healing. Can I just encourage you with one thing? No matter what you've done in your life, no matter how much sin you've brought to the table, the grace of God abounds. The grace of God is bigger than anything else we have gone through. And when he sees you, he has not changed his mind about you. He wants you to get over these idols. He wants you to persevere through the culture, believe and repent. If you have called upon the name of the Lord, if you are living for Christ Jesus, dig deeper in God's word and the influence of the culture will be kept at bay. Persevere, church, in the power of our merciful God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together as a church. Thank you, Father God, for the church as a whole that's so much bigger than these walls. The understanding that we serve a merciful Savior and that good dads will always rejoice in their children's steps. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for your goodness. And it is tough out there, but it's nothing that you don't already know. You've reminded us that you have defeated death. You've reminded us that you hold the keys, not just to life and death, but victory is in Jesus. That we have but to lean in on you, focus on you, fixate on you, and we can have the strength necessary to persevere through the worst that life has to throw at us. Father God, you are a good, good Father, and I rejoice in your name. It is in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.